Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. It was a real pleasure to catch up today with Stephen Hughes, who is a Rear Admiral in the Royal Australian Navy. For those that aren't familiar with Navy titles, this is very senior. In essence, he reports to the Admiral or the CEO of the Navy. So in industry, this would be equivalent to a role as a group executive or a divisional director. Stephen's been in the Navy for 35 years, but each couple of years he's taken on a new role. His current responsibilities is overseeing an inaugural position, head of the Defence Intelligence Group. And it's really interesting to hear his approach to building something from scratch. I first met Stephen when we launched Are You OK? on the Navy frigate HMAS Adelaide, and he was addressing 600 sailors before they left Australia for six months. I was really impressed with what he had to say that day, and I often repeat it in my keynote addresses. I just think it was really spot on. He also discussed some of the sacrifices that sailors have to make and shared that when the Iraq war broke out, he was required to be away from his family for one year. It's really hard to grasp that, and it really made me feel very, very grateful for his service and the service of all defence personnel. Navy is an amazing place to develop leadership skills because there are so many different types of teams. Stephen developed a reputation for building high-performance team, and it's really interesting to hear his beliefs on the critical building blocks to achieve that. I really enjoyed hearing about a world that I didn't know much about, but one thing I learned is that a caring CEO in the armed forces has a huge amount in common with a caring CEO in industry. Enjoy. It's a real delight to have Rear Admiral Stephen Hughes here with us today. Welcome, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Stephen, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Because you have a very varied workforce in the Navy and you're 35 years there. You've been on a ships and also sometimes in office. But what's the common quality around care for you? Look, um, I think care in the workplace, the environment that your people and your leadership team need to operate in and whether, you know, in the Navy context, it's been at sea and ships or alongside you know, in a shore posting in a, in a headquarters or a joint or a mixed public service military environment. But I think it really comes down to creating an environment where people feel welcome, they feel safe, they feel that it's an inclusive workspace and that their contribution is valued, whether it's leadership, their subordinates or their peers feel that any ideas or their contribution is worth something and valued. So at the end of the day, when they go home, they go, all right, it was a tough day. It was a hard day and you know, I might have got in trouble or I didn't quite deliver or I've done something really well, but they feel they're being valued and it's a safe place to work. So I think it's around the environment that you set, whether you're a leader or a participant in the workplace, and it's a collaborative space. When you're a commander of a a Navy ship or a frigate, how do you assess if that culture of care is on there as a commander? How do you know whether it exists? Well, I think uh, as the CO, 
or the commanding officer of a ship, the first thing I would say to anybody who's going to do that role, or in fact, I think it's most probably got similarities in industry, you can't lead from your cabin. In other words, you can't shut yourself in the office and expect to know what's going on on the deck plates or in various parts of your organisation. And I think any commanding officer or, or business leader, whether public or private, you get a feel for your organisation by actually getting out and about and talking and engaging with your workforce, but also having multiple inputs, whether it's your external stakeholders or your workforce or your boss's bosses, if, if you get the, the drift there. And I think it's important that you stay open to multiple feeds and you get a sense of the environment that you're trying to create. And part of that is being willing to accept feedback, go in with your eyes wide open that, you know, nothing's going to be perfect. But sometimes it's just having that one or two minute conversation, the passageway, you know, with a sailor or one of your employees, you know, well, how is your wife or your family? And oh, I hear your dog was sick. And, and what that sometimes does, it sort of opens the avenue to a larger, more broader conversation, not a longer conversation, You've got to have trust in your subordinates or your line managers in them having the confidence to also put their feelers out and then feel in a safe way they can come back and go, you know, boss, that last policy you put down or that decision you made, you know, that didn't really go down very well. In fact, lead balloon. Maybe there's another way of doing it. But I think to understand what that workplace is, is you've got to get out of your cabin. You've got to get out of your office and be seen not just to show interest and tick the box, but give the opportunity to open up those communication paths. Yeah, fantastic. I was very fortunate as a board director of Are You OK to attend the launch of Are You OK and HMAS Adelaide. And it was a wonderful experience. It really was. And you may recall that we started with uh, Gwen Chern, who was an ambassador for Are You OK? And she spoke about her husband, a service person who had lost his life to suicide. And then you spoke. And do you remember what you said? Because I remember it very well. Yeah, it's funny. I It was one of those on the spot sort of analogies or something to try and explain to a lot of sailors why the mental health and it, not just mental health, but you know, a whole raft of issues which you could pack under that. And I suppose it was around the bottom line up front about getting after issues early. And I think what I said to them is if you can deal with something at range early, it gives you a number of opportunities to attack it again. Mm. And it's what you know we call in a military sense, a depth of fire. Mm. In other words, you can do, you know, your first hit out and you either get it first time and it gives you to go after another problem. Or if you miss, you've got another shot at it or another shot. Mm. And the later you leave, bad news doesn't get, you know, get well with time. But if you wait until it's now right in front of you, that last self-defense where you're using a machine gun to shoot down something, it's Mm. too late. I I think where I was really going there is telling people that if you get indications of warning, you get early signs, you think things aren't, just don't be passive and expect it to go away or somebody else will deal with it. To have the courage, the commitment and the vision to lean forward into that with yourself or your team to try and deal with it early because you never know. You may avoid that white of the eyes, last minute, desperate, I've now got to pick up the pieces. So, yeah. uh, And I think that holds with a whole bunch of things. 
And I suppose the biggest indication of warning is that, you know, going back to my earlier about that listening culture, the communication culture, asking, you know, are you okay? Because nine times out of 10, people go, yeah, I'm fine. But you might just get that one time where somebody goes, you know, boss, I'm not. And you might have caught it at a point where you can turn it around or you've got a whole bunch of opportunities to put a plan together to get after it, not deal with it, you know, to be brutally honest, where you wake up one morning, get a phone call from your duty officer or one of your subordinates who says, hey, such and such committed suicide last night. And you start unpicking that and going, oh, I saw this and three months ago, if I did that, well, you know, try and be attuned to your workforce, get after it early. Anyway. Yeah. I really liked what you said there because it did really seem to resonate. You first of all mentioned that we don't want to lose anyone from the Navy family this way. This is following what Gwen had described. Does it feel like a family, you know, on the ship? Is that um, what the, the sort of thing you try to engender? Oh, look, I, th- I think you could use all sorts of descriptions, a community, a family. I prefer to put it in the sense of you come to work with a common purpose. And that purpose is set whether by the government, you know, from the chief of Navy or whoever. And through that common purpose, you create multiple teams. So whether it's the engineering team, the chefs or the supply department or the bosuns who handle all the ropes and the small weapons through to what I call the command team, which, you know, sort of supposed to make a bunch of decisions. But all those small teams come together as one entity. And yes, At the social level, we all live in the accommodation, the ship, the sailors, you know, they're stacked sort of two or three high in a bunk arrangement and anywhere between, you know, six to 12 and some of the older ships, you know, larger numbers. So socially, you are a family because you've got to put up with the good and the bad and, (laughs) you know, everybody has their own family experience. But, you know, there's some days where you've got to, you get told by the wife that what you did was the wrong thing. Um, and other days, you know, everybody gives everyone a big hug. But I think it's the community of a common purpose and people understanding their role, mm. you know, their function from a professional career or a skill set and how you contribute. And by natural processes of what I call good leadership, developing the right culture, I think you then can say you're a family, but it's not just you know, the people on the ship. And Defence and Navy over many years has put a lot of resources and effort in trying to support not just the sailors on the ship through what we call the divisional system, which is keeping them up to date on the latest policy or procedures, work health and safety, but also the welfare of the broader Navy family, which is you know, partners, loved ones, families, the community. Mm. And you can't get it right all the time, but I think there's a lot greater caring and not necessarily responsibility, but providing the tools and the, the opportunity for a serving personnel, you know, in the Navy who come goes to sea in the ships or, you know, works in the office environment where we genuinely look at the whole person, not just the employee. And, you know, we've got the Defence Community Organisation. There's a number of other organisations or things we're putting in place to build what I call the broader Navy family and across defence for that matter. And I think mental health has been a huge, maybe it is an awakening that there's more to it than just making sure 
they get three square meals a day and they have good working hours and you know, we provide them you know internet access at sea i think there's a whole bunch of components now to what the navy is so you know is it a family i think so because through a positive culture you know and the right leadership people feel there's more to it than just doing the job but at the end of the day it is a community and it's some of of a number of teams that you train and bring together to deliver the mission effect and i'm sure it's the same for industry you know you you've got people in production you've got people in sales and marketing and unless those teams are integrated and they feel they're all contributing against a greater vision and then the families are important why because they're the ones who are sending their loved ones off to work whether it's in the mining industry which is complex and and risky as the military is depending you know the work environments it's an interesting discussion whether it's a family or whatever one thing that i would i guess just make the observation about like after that presentation we all went up to the top of the, the deck of the HMS Adelaide and formed the are you okay and that was a a great experience because i really thought back to our founder Gavin Larkin who sadly died from cancer and what an amazing thing he would have thought that was i couldn't help but think about that but then we went downstairs and i'm not sure if you stayed there but there was promotions announced and a morning tea and what really was very surprising for me who's only ever worked in industry was that the family were there for the sailors getting promoted you know the kids were there and you know i just thought that was so unusual but also really really powerful because i guess you have the situation where sailors are away for a long time and it probably helps that the kids see the environment and also feel proud that their parents male or female have been promoted well i've been doing the this navy thing for 35 years and i remember for i sort of became more despound first 14 years of my career i was at sea pretty much non-stop and every milestone in terms of my own career progression and promotions within you know those first 14 years i could not have, and you know i got married mid 20s so i you know i had a bit of time under my belt but i had a young family and i remember you know back in the 2003 you know sort of the iraqi war back there where we deployed away for a whole year i remember my two young daughters one was i think 6 months and the other was just over 2 years i suppose because they're a couple of years apart and i remember saying goodbye but when i came back a year later after many weeks at sea my youngest didn't even know who i was and my eldest i think had an inclination sort of realized it was me and the youngest ended up just following along just, you know for the giggles to see who this guy was <laughs> but the reality is mm. i could not have done that year with the support of my wife and my kids and my family and when you then extrapolate that out to the broader navy community our navy people and our defense force people and it's not just navy alone the family sacrifice a lot for the service we're giving to the country and i think all our defense force personnel and military staff public service and and serving for that service but i also thank the families for trusting in the defense force and our values and our mission so when it comes to us getting promoted or elevated by inviting the families it's really very important to recognize 
the support our family's given. You know, I've been lucky. My wife, you know, every step of the way has been, you know, um, by my side, supporting me. She's given up in her early years of career and it's only now, you know, she's getting after a career where it's sort of every day I question, you know, at what point do I give it away and support her? And I'm hoping I'm doing that just in case she's listening. But I think the reality is the reason we bring our families is because it's recognition of the contribution families make. And we always, and it's not a box ticking exercise, we always acknowledge the sacrifices the families make. I mean, a wife at home with two young kids for 12 months while we're off in a war zone, I can't even imagine the stress and the turmoil that, you know, my wife got through it. And I see every time a ship comes back on the news, I see the families on the wharf with both relief, but also immense pride for their resilience and their support for the mission and what the serving people do. Yeah, it is uh, quite extraordinary when you hear being away for a year. We've we've had all the country go into, in lockdown and feel a little bit isolated, but yeah, it's not on the same scale, is it? It's really extraordinary. I was just going to say on the interest, you know, with the national response to COVID, and I'm not talking about the government system response, but the resilience the Australian people have shown. I think is reflective of the experience I've seen in the military. We come together as a community in hardship. We recognise that individuals are reacting or families or communities are reacting different ways. And it's not we're ignoring it. I mean, I see the support that many mental health organisations, community groups, uh, non-profit organisations and what the government's various state and federal are doing. But I remember walking through Sydney in the worst of the COVID period last year where there was nobody walking around Potts Point, Kings Cross area near the Navy base. But every single bus stop had the RUOK yellow and black sign on it where a company obviously donated that space. And it made me realise that we as a country, no matter what the hardship is, whether it's drought, fires, we always step up to the plate. And I thank the Australian people for the support they've given, you know, the military and defence over many years. But I also take my hat off in the way the Australian people have dealt with the crises we've had over the last couple of years. And things like Are You OK, you know, Beyond Blue um, and various helplines have all contributed to making Australians feel they're supported. And I look then at a number of industry and businesses that I deal with or have social engagement through other means who tell similar stories of, you know, how they've responded to make sure, you know, people can work safely from home. They've got the technology. They're checking in with their workforce. They're having, you know, what I call social-like events to bring the workforce back together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the military is not alone in providing this what I call this caring environment for the people that make their company or their community for whatever motivation they exist uh, to grow and, and, and be resilient through these times. So yeah, a little bit offline there. No, it's very, uh, it is very relevant because there has been, you know, remarkable pulling together and, and people, the largest extent have cooperated in the, in the best possible way. And that has been a, a really interesting thing. Like my father passed away early this year, he was 91. 
But he just couldn't believe that things like the pubs were closed and all this sort of stuff because he could remember back to, you know, the wars and the aftermath of the Great Depression and the pubs were always open and, uh, you know, you can go there. So it was unique or is unique is that every single person has been affected and that is a very unusual uh, situation. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. You've obviously been in lots of different environments within the Navy, Stephen. Can you just give our listeners who may not be familiar with a naval career, just a little bit of a a brief background about uh, how you got to where you are now over 35 years? What were the various roles you had and um, what what did you learn from those roles? I grew up in a Navy family. My father was in the Navy and to be told, I actually wanted to go and join the Air Force and do something completely different. But <laughs> for one reason or another, I ended up with a naval career. Maybe I wasn't smart enough or good enough for him. I started off initially as an engineer. and My father was an electrical engineer. And I went and did engineering because I liked technology. I, I liked doing things. I went on a number of ships when I was a young midshipman, you know, the sort of the lowest officer rank where we were getting work experience. And one of my reports wrote, this officer has no interest in engineering (laughs) and he should become a seaman officer, uh, you know, a ship driver. And the reason was I was fascinated by the capability of what ships could bring and their teams could bring and the technology in the ships. And I was more interested in the operation of the capability rather than the maintenance or the sustainment of the capability. You know, I had experience on frigates and submarines and I sort of went, you know, I actually enjoy this work. And then the other component of it, I remember I asked somebody, you know, could you get command of a ship if you were an engineer? And the answer was, you know, back in those days, no, and why would you want to? Um, And I suppose that built the courage to have a conversation with my father and said, Dad, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to drive ships, which he was very supportive. And then I had to go through the whole process of convincing Navy as a young engineer that I should go and drive ships. And they weren't too happy about the investment they had made in education. But in the end, I think they thought that I might have something to value add. But when I got to sea, I went through a number of career continuums, which 
built on skills of ship driving and fighting the ship and leading the ship and ultimately commanding the ship over sort of 10 to 15 years. Plus, I had some experience in the Canadian Navy and the US Navy. And then I landed for the very first time really in the Canberra-Russell environment, you know, the strategic headquarters in defence, where I got introduced to developing capability, you know, ship projects and stuff. And including that was uh, the Hobart class destroyers, you know, back in the early mid 2000s. And I found I had a little bit of engineering background and thinking, plus the operator understanding experience. And I brought that together. And I really then found myself in a bit of a niche environment of developing capability and delivering projects through requirements and concepts in between of you know going back to sea or going back to a command position like I was the last couple of years up in Sydney and then to partly in the right place at the right time which I you know I think is with any successful career you, you know there's a bit of that but also building a reputation to deliver and deliver in a way that keeps teams together and has a more holistic integration or building a broader relationship with stakeholders and a community to deliver a program. And, you know, and as I got more senior, I got more responsibility. I continued to deliver. I continued to lead the teams and then now accountable for a whole environment of capability. Um, Again, uh, 12 months ago, that environment didn't exist. Decisions are made and an opportunity opened and, and here I am. So I think my, my career has been built around, you know, developing um, experience, taking hits along the way, seeking advice from people and and just taking opportunity and continue to stretch yourself beyond, you know, your comfort zone. And as a consequence, you know, in my case, I, I, you know, I've been very lucky and very fortunate and proud, proud to serve. Yeah. And I know also your father was a rear admiral, Stephen. Did you feel pressure through that, that, uh, you know, he'd risen to those ranks, which, you know, for other people, I guess, one level below, right, the the, the head of the Navy. Um, did you feel pressure to want to match him? or I always respected what my father had achieved, but I never, I sort of didn't want to live in his shadow. Part of the, uh, the decisions I made was not, oh, I don't want to do what dad did, but I wanted to be my own man. And that brought its own challenges because, you know, I had enormous respect and the last thing I want to do was, you know, let your father down. But I felt the further I I went down a different path, the closer he and I became. And I remember a time in the mid-2000s, and for the first time in my life, he asked me for some advice. That was the change in sort of, you know, early mid-40s where I realised that I no longer needed to live in that shadow. I mean, given the fact he'd been retired from the Navy for you know, nearly 10, 15 years, it didn't matter. He was still an admiral. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, he, he passed away, you know, four or five years ago. And uh, I remember he, he got advice from the Chief of Navy who visited him in hospital and said, look, we're going to promote your, your son to Commodore in a year. Um, and then when I made rear admiral, I must admit, I thought, well, hopefully he's looking down and, and you know, I think we've done all right here. But I never felt I was, I was in a race or it was a competition. I, I felt it was me being my own man and I had him as that support, but I had my family and my close friends who, who were there for the journey. 
everybody has their life story around the role of their parents, the role of their friends. When you bring it back to this caring CEO-like conversation, you'll be surprised the number of people in the workforce or in your organisation who all have their own unique story. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's worth just spending a bit of time to find those stories because it makes you reflect and, and think, you know, what a diverse and inclusive and brilliant you know, country we live in. So I'm just lucky to have one part of that story and as many of them. Yes, yeah. As you just described, you know, you've had a really um, varied career in the Navy and are now right at the top. The common element is that you've been able to build capable teams and, and deliver. What have you found to be the really essential ingredients for a capable and high-performing team? It's around having firstly a vision. It's around developing a purpose and then explaining that purpose and that vision to your team so they understand what part of the team or that vision their role is or their accountability, their responsibility is. And it's also understanding the team, you know, how they contribute to the value of the mission. And like, they don't all have to agree with it, but they need to understand why it's important and why we've got to do it. And, you know, whether it's the Navy or industry, somebody's got to clean the toilets. And it's just one component of achieving the mission. Nobody wants to clean toilets, but at the end of the day, you've got to. So mm. it's not focusing on individual tasks. It's around people understanding their role in that and then communicating that, but also then being sensitive to your workforce and the team around their risks they're managing, whether personally or as part of the outcome you're trying to do. Having that open communication continue to update it because no plan survives first contact. You know, as soon as you start <laughs> realising risks, you know, they become issues and, and, and you've got to change course. Creating that environment of, of, you know, when we go back to the beginning of the conversation you know, around that inclusive, safe environment. And then the other component is once you've built the team and they understand, it's actually now letting them get on with it mm. and having the discipline in terms of as a manager or a leader when you delegate something, you can still hold them to account, but let them get on with it, check in how they're going, but also have your door open and they can have a conversation with boss, you told us to do this, we're doing this, is this what you want or we're struggling with this, you know, can you help us? Mm. But once they're on the path, it's also then clearing the, the runway for them to get on with the job and keep you know, all that process and bureaucracy and things out of the way and, and try and let them get on with the job. Now, I'm not you know, your lower level managers, they're the ones that got to deal with, you know, the reporting up the chain and filling in the spreadsheets and writing the reports and, and reporting in because that's part of, you know, the accountability and, and the management of a complex project or whatever activity you're doing. But I think the way to create a good team is through strong leadership and then also building the team with the skills you need and letting make sure the team understands that they don't have to carry the load themselves. It's the sum of the parts. So you've got a good you know, commercial area, you've got a good technical area, you've got a good project management area or whatever your business is. Mm. And then they feel they've got those networks and communication feedback loops. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's also ensuring the team understands who their stakeholders are and allow them to have access to the stakeholders 
so that they can have those conversations they need to live the project. And then if everything goes well, you know, you swim into the next one. But if you start getting into problems, you know, having the dynamicness and the flexibility in the organisation to, you know, to be resilient to change or whatever it is, because a lot of the projects, you know, we do in defence, you know, take many years to design and deliver. I mean, just, you know, it's not something you do overnight. As I understand, you have taken on an inaugural role heading the Defence Intelligence Group. What does that involve? And it's obviously haven't been done before. So how are you planning things for something that hasn't been done before? Within this new intelligence group, which is bringing together a number of agencies, uh, my area is sort of the third leg of the stool. It's around intelligence capability. And I, I work for a three-star lieutenant general. And what the vision was is a lot of the capabilities, you know, and we're talking like really dull stuff like data and networks and collection systems, were all being done in isolated silos. The, the other services, you know, Army, Navy and Air Force were doing their own thing. And what they wanted, the vision was, is we integrate the capability aspects, which allows us to get after decision advantage we want from information. And it doesn't all have to be you know, classified or anything. It's just how do you bring all that together? So that was the challenge. What I needed to work out is how do you build a number of teams with the right expertise and integrate then and then engage your stakeholders, your partners, both across the national community and the international community that synchronizes and integrates all the sum of the parts to deliver a more effective outcome. And I think when you turn up to an organisation and there is no plan, you have a scattered workforce of resources which you've got to work out and then you know you've got gaps. Mm -hmm. um, you just, you've got to lay out what is success like, what resources they're given and then start prioritising. Again, you, you can't own all the bright ideas. Mm -hmm. you, you might own the intent or own the logic of what you're trying to do, but it's your junior managers or your mid mid-level managers and your workforce who have that expertise. Mm. This intelligence thing was something I knew nothing about. You know, I've driven ships and I've built ships and suddenly they want me to, you know, do this thing. So I didn't have all the answers, but I had the experience of dealing with the organisation and understanding the capability life cycle without getting too technical. So um, I had to be very reliant on my senior leaders and my subject matter experts. And what we've done over the last six months is we've co-located in the sense of, you know, we understand who we've got. We now have a pretty good firm on what the vision looks like and we understand what are the important things we've got to get after. And now we're laying out what I call the, the formal plans and strategies that in case I get hit by a bus tomorrow or somebody else, you know, it will have some longevity beyond, you know, a posting cycle of a couple of years. There's an intent when you look at what government wants out of defence with the challenges we have ahead of us to bring forward a lot of these capabilities and put all these enabling systems in place before you know, new ships and new aircraft, et cetera, come along. So I have to create this high-performance team and, and then listening to the advice, which most probably is my weakness, is being an active listener is hard work as a leader, especially when you've got lots of bright ideas flying around your head and you're trying to deliver something quickly. I think once we get the fundamentals in place and we can then articulate that vision and the plan, then you'll get that external and leadership buy-in to your program. And we're starting to see that now. The, the fruit of the last six months is doing that. 
But then because we are now delivering at pace and planning at pace, there's a lot of pressure on the team. And then, of course, we've had the recent lockdowns and impacts. I mean, the ACT, we're just hoping like hell it doesn't come across the border. But you know, I look out to our compatriots in New South Wales, mm. Queensland, Western Australia. I mean, it's it's got to be a matter of time, but it's not trying to be half glass empty here. But there's other pressures on the workforce. So we've really ramped up to a certain extent our communications around you know the COVID piece, but also at the working level, making sure that if people need time off work, go and have some time. 80% is good enough. It doesn't be 100%. We've got to apply some sort of sensitivity to the work. And then I, my role is to communicate upwards to make sure people realise the risk they're carrying by the fact that we're only going to get an 80% solution here or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned before that, you know, in terms of influences on you, what about, uh, you know, throughout your career, were there particular mentors that really provided lots of insight and I guess suggestions to really lift your game. Can you think of any that fitted that picture? Yeah, and it might not be just individuals. I mean, you can nut it down to individuals, but I put it down to experiences, both the good ones and the bad ones. Mm. So, and then there are a couple of individuals which just gave you a life lesson, which at the time you may not have appreciated, but it has set you up for success. So I saw a lot of commanding officers through my career who weren't necessarily the best. Their approach to leadership didn't fit my natural tendency in the way I'd like to do it. So you saw what worked, what didn't work. And then I had the bulk of my CEOs and my personal commanding officers who were really set very high standards and gave me insight into why, you know, they were successful. So it's experience-based. It's picking and choosing and, and then matching it up against your own value set. And, you know, in my case, I had a very clear view of what I thought was the right thing to do. At the end of the day, as a leader, it's an individual journey. And you can reach out and go and get a mentor, talk to people who had a successful career. But I learned a couple of lessons very early on as an officer and individuals who took the courage to stand up and no, Steve, that is not how we're going to do it. You need to be aware that if you continue on that behaviour or continue on that path, you're not going to serve the sailors you're supposed to lead. And, mm. and I take one example. There was a, a petty officer, so a senior non-commissioned officer, like a sergeant rank, and I was at the Defence Academy and I was a squad leader. So I was marching maybe 24, 30 people in a squad and uh, we were, it was a beautiful day, marching along, everybody was having a good chat. You know, it was just you know, a bunch of young officers all having a hoot of a day. And out of nowhere, this petty officer sort of jumped out of a tree or who knows where he came from. And he hauled the squad up, you know, stopped that squad. And he said to me, what's going on? You know, you're all talking in the ranks and sort of got quite grumpy. And my response to him is, well, it wasn't me, PO, it was them. Oh, boy. Did it. <laughs> He, he let us go, but he, he wanted me to see him, I think, at a lunch break or something up in, in the office. And he hauled me up there. Everybody in the office left, and he put me in, in the senior officer's office in that area, and he closed the door. And he just he said, if your team screws up, you need to be accountable for your team, and you need to do things so your team doesn't screw up or they behave right. And it was that accountability piece. And from that day on, if I ever screwed up or my team screwed up, 
I always stood in front of them and went, hey, it was my fault, I'm accountable, it's my problem, I'll deal with it. But there's some of those key life lessons that shape you as a human. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have had that experience, good or bad. Mm-hmm. They've had a mentor who's helped them get through something. And, you know, family is very important to me, but I've had a wife, you know, who's been extremely supportive and she does, she's not shy of coming forward with advice. <laughs> um, and that perspective that your wife or your friends or a mentor or another officer, the fact that they have the courage to either identify something in you worth preserving or or moving forward, or they just see disaster and they just want to stop disaster. Mm. But at the end of the day, I think everybody is shaped by things, but it comes down to your values, the values of the organisation you're working in and what is important to you in your life. Um, You know, is it serving your nation? Is it your family or is it just the paycheck at the end of the day? Personal decision, I know where my mind sits. Um, so, yeah. Knowing what you know now, Stephen, if you had the chance to go back and talk to yourself as an 18-year-old just when you were joining the Navy, what what advice would you give yourself? Oh, boy. Um, I don't, <laughs> I, it would be most probably confirming that what I did most probably was the right thing. I mean, there'll be lots of things in my life I go, I wish I hadn't done that. And I'll go, you know, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and change that. You know, I didn't say that thing. I didn't lose my call because I was tired. I think most probably I I would have spent more time early understanding where my weaknesses were. Mm. You know, what are the things that trigger a behaviour that I don't think is appropriate? Like I remember one day I was in command tired we've been i've been up for god knows probably 30 odd hours you know just not getting a really good solid night's sleep and my principal warfare officer the guy who runs the operations room where we fight the ship they were doing something and i just lost it i i just creamed him in front of all his people and i walked away and went well where did that come from and i actually wrote him a personal letter of reflection apologizing for that behavior because it wasn't me it wasn't appropriate you know, i tore shreds off him for really no reason mm. most probably that would be the bit of advice is know your weaknesses and know where that trigger is to that weakness whether it's behavior or you know in your professional weakness or whatever it is but in terms of knowing what i know now and talking to myself would be just do your job do your job don't worry about you know am i going to get promoted am, am i going to get more money just do it and do it well and i'm not talking about only just doing it to make your bosses happy or that, but just do what is right. And then, you know, you just never know what happens. You'll, you'll, you'll get another opportunity, which I suppose leads in saying is, you know, look for opportunities that, that excite you or will challenge you and, and will stretch you because it's so easy to fall into a, a, a whole of your comfort zone. You know, the thing that's always kept me resilient is by the challenge or the mental challenge or the physical challenge mm. of doing something differently and not sitting in your comfort zone and then getting to the point where you get bored and your brain starts wandering or your body starts wandering in different shapes and forms, if, if you get what I mean. And then I think the other thing which I would most probably have told myself to read more broadly, mm-hmm. you know, actually read and, and become more worldly around what's going around because not just what as your interest in my case woodwork or whatever it was 
um, but other things because then, you know, if you're in a social environment or something, you've got something else to talk about than just your job. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, yeah, maybe definitely, definitely. It's been a real pleasure catching up today, Stephen, and thanks for providing some insight into a career in the Navy and sincere thanks for your service. I, I just, some of the things you mentioned there, particularly the, de the deployment for one year away from your family just sounds extraordinary. It really does. And uh, I can see why the Navy values the family so much as well. So uh, thanks for adding great insights to the caring CEO. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Uh, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.